Pray with me. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this Sunday morning that we can come together and study your word and worship you, Lord. We love you and we thank you for that, Lord. As we are about to enter into our service and worship, Lord, pray, dear God, that you will fill this room with your spirit. Lord, bless the services this morning, Lord. May we be mindful of you. May we glorify you and may we worship you today with a full heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Katie Bowles, and um, I had the privilege of leading worship for D-Now this weekend. And so we get to be here with you all today, which I'm really excited about. I grew up in this church, and so it's a privilege and an honor to be back here today. So why don't you stand up? We're going to worship the Lord together this morning. Oh, my God. 
welcome you this morning. I'm going to welcome you the official way this morning first. We're glad that you are with us. Glad that you chose to be a part of the worship time this morning. Worthy is the Lamb, right? Amen. Isn't that great? Um, we have a special thing we'd like to ask of guests. If you are a guest here, all we ask of you is that if you could please fill out this tear-out portion of your bulletin and drop that in the plate as it comes later on um, this morning so we can have record of your visit. We want to welcome you, let you know we're glad you're here. I want you guys in a second to greet one another, shake hands and hug and say hello to one another. But I would like to officially give a great thanks to our church this morning um, for Disciple Now. Thanks for your support, thanks for your prayer, and all the support that you've given. I want to officially also thank our band for being here since they're here with us again this morning. You guys give them a hand. Praise God. I praise God for what he has done in the life of his people and how he's gifted us for his glory. It's a little special this morning, I think, even to me because two of these guys, Katie and Nathan, grew up here. And so they didn't just grow up in the home of one of our members, but they grew up here in this church home. So many of you have had the opportunity to support and, and do what God was doing in their lives. So glad to have them back. I'm thankful for the rest of the guys that are here with us to help lead us. So uh, make sure you make them feel welcome this morning and uh, make one another feel welcome this morning. going to continue our worship this morning. You guys must really love each other. You greet each other for a long time. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, for he heals all your diseases. He brings your life up from the pit. He satisfies us with loving kindness. And it goes on to say in verse 10 that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. That is good news that the Lord does not treat me as my sins deserve. 
And so we have reason, a lot, a lot of reasons to bless the Lord today. So let's tell our souls today to bless the Lord, for He is good, He is worthy of all our praise. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like this.
worship your holy trust and our hope in God today is our cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend. trust in Jesus name let's sing that again my hope is built my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust37 through 47. Acts chapter 2.
Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their properties and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy scripture. We thank you how it instruct, instructs us and how it reveals to us your nature, your character. Father, we are thankful for Christ and that our hope is built on nothing less than his, his blood and righteousness. And that because of his, his sacrifice, his death on the cross, we have a relationship with you. We have a righteousness that is not ours, but it's Christ. We have a relationship with you now because of that. Father, be with us as we go to our towns and our schools and our homes and to the nations. And we proclaim this message of repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ is worthy of our, of our worship, so be with us as we continue to worship you through studying your scripture and through song. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
would you stand with us? We're going to continue our worship through singing. This is a song we taught this weekend. It's called Wide as the Sky. And in the verse, it, it's, it's really simple. It just says, let all the other names fade away. And Jesus, take your place. And this weekend, the theme of the weekend was Jesus is better than. And we talked through different things that he was better than. Ultimately, he's better than everything. Jesus is better than everything. And so it's our prayer that the other things of this world, the other names would fade away and that Jesus Christ would take his rightful place in our hearts, in this world, in this church, in this youth group, that Jesus would be the center of it all. So let's sing this together. Hands up, hearts open, wide as the sky. We lift you
above everything else is our desire. So much more of you and so much less of us. I want to be close, close to your side. So heaven is real and death is a lie. I want to hear voices of angels above singing as one. Hallelujah, holy, holy God. shake before you and the demons run and flee at the mention of your name king of majesty Run and flee at the mention of your name. 
we believe that you are the only God. You're the king above all kings. You're the Lord of lords. You have set yourself apart. You are holy. There's no one like you. So we lift you high. We give you glory and honor and praise for who you are, God. We pray now that you would speak to us through your word. Would you open our eyes to see more of who you are? We've sung all this and we pray all of this. In the name of Christ, amen. I, uh, I think it's really easy to say, wow. Our Lord, our God is great. And Katie and the band have really helped us see and focus on and enjoy the greatness of our God. Wow, I'm so thankful to be here. If you'll join me in the book of Acts, as we've been going through Experiencing God, this past week has put a laser beam focus on the church and its importance, its vitality and vitalness in the life of every believer and in the carrying out of the Great Commission so that the end result of the activity of the church is to do what Peter said in 1 Peter, to proclaim the excellencies 
of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, the activity of the church is always done in order that it might say, Jesus is better. That's the job of the church. So that in our behavior, in our relationships, we say Jesus is better. In our activities, in the things that we give our lives to, we say Jesus is better. And so that as the world looks on to the church, standing outside looking in, the world says, why are you gathering? Why are you singing? Why are you praising? Why are you worshiping? Why are you witnessing? Why are you doing missions? Why are you doing the things that you do? And the church looks back out to the world and says, because Jesus is better. That's our testimony. But the church cannot do this without a very unique kind of relationship with each other. And that was the focus of experiencing God this week, was to help us to really be challenged in understanding our focus in our relationship with each other and what that says to those who are outside. In fact, as the Apostle Paul kind of laid out the ministry of the church, in Ephesians 4.16 he said that the church carries out this mission by the proper working of every individual part. And what he was emphasizing was the important, the vital nature of every single individual's full participation. Now the church has a challenge in our modern age. For the past 350 years in North America, it has been advantageous to be a part of the church. If you were a part of the church from the beginning of the inhabiting of America, through just recent history, it was advantageous to you relationally to the world, to your job, to politics, to so many avenues of life, even education. It was advantageous to be a member of the church, but that age is passing. And so what's happening is, is some of the things that caused us to be drawn to the church in the early days of American history are no longer going to be the things that draw us to church in the latter days of American history, the present days. At one time, your reputation was considered socially good because of church attachment. Today, that's turning. And so when we think about how do we move forward at this period of time in the life, the history, the present activity of the church into what God has called us to in the future? How do we do that biblically? I think if we look back at the book of Acts, the book of Acts gives us some pictures of what it's like for the church to really be the church, 
so that every person who calls themselves a part of the body of Christ is a fully participating disciple of Christ. And they are, in terms that we use presently, they're all in. In the realm of poker, there's this moment in playing poker where a person takes everything that they have and they slide it to the middle of the table and they gamble everything that they have on this one moment, this one thing, and they say these words, I'm all in. In other words, this is everything and I'm all in. And I'm afraid that today the church has been conditioned by three things that keep us from being all in. One of those things is the microwave culture. If we don't get instantaneous, quick gratification from church life, we tend to not be all in. Another thing that's handicapping us is the disposable culture we've all grown up in. And that culture is not just that things ought to be fast and happen fast and give me results fast. It's if things don't work for me, I can get rid of them. Or once I've used them, I, I dispose of them. We're in the age of disposable diapers, and we're in the age of disposable plates, and we're in the age of disposable everything. So that when something no longer is useful, we just throw it away. But we're also struggling with the pragmatic culture. The pragmatic culture is, I am in this for what I can get personally, quickly, so that I measure my church participation by how I quickly benefit and so the pragmatics are, if it's not working for me, I'll just go somewhere else and try something else. And the idea of being all in in church is foreign to the North American mind. The idea of sliding all of our chips to the middle of the table and saying, I'm all in. And so with pragmatism and the disposable culture and the microwave culture all being a part of our lives, we're very hesitant to be all in. We tend to be like the kid on the edge of the swimming pool dangling his feet in, not wanting to get all in because of whatever perceived dangers there are in the pool, but just enough to get the feet wet and have a little enjoyment. And so, the New Testament gives us a picture of what life ought to be like when we're all in. I want to begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is helpful. Let's bring that up and read it together. It's in small print, so I'll read it. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart, but for a Christian there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. 
Christ who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating in good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Roll to the next slide, just this one quote. You have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. That's the church life. The church life is not that we have surrounded ourselves with a particular group of people by our choosing that we think will be most beneficial for us. It is that in the true church, God places each of us as he desires in the body for the mutual benefit of each other. In other words, there is a sense in which we are interdependently in need of each other because God has chosen, as C.S. Lewis sort of rephrases a word from Jesus, but I have chosen you for one another. That there is some way in which the relationships of the church are eternally beneficial for the church members. But in order to be all in, I believe that there are five things that reveal the all-in nature of the church and are really a requirement of the all-in nature of the church. Let's jump into those. If I'm going to be all-in, if I'm going to truly slide all of my chips to the middle of the table and say, I am putting everything in. I think there are five places we do that. Number one, we have to be all in in trust. When we place our faith in Jesus, he calls us into a relationship with each other that is a relationship of mutual vulnerability where we begin to entrust ourselves to each other. Where we're commanded things like, Confess your sins to one another. That's mutual vulnerability. Bear one another's burdens. That's mutual vulnerability. God calls us into a relationship in the church where as we have trusted him entering the church, he builds a culture of trust within the church where we labor together for mutual vulnerability to entrust ourselves to each other's care in the body of Christ. To entrust ourselves to each other's help in the body of Christ. To entrust ourselves to each other's discipline in the body of Christ. To entrust ourselves to each other's teaching, influence, correction, so many things that the Bible teaches us are matters of trust within the body of Christ. The body must learn to trust the input from each part, experiencing a mutual vulnerability. In the New Testament, we see that in the book of Acts. We see that they begin to entrust to each other their possessions. They begin to entrust to each other their confessions. They begin to entrust to each other their very lives. And something that is developed 
is a culture of mutual trust. That is why when the Bible talks about this culture, it talks about it from two angles in the Old Testament. From one angle, it is found in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Join me there for just a moment. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. When we talk about a culture of trust, we talk about a kind of person that has been born again, who becomes, as a result of the new birth, a trustworthy type of person who works for mutual trust within the congregation so that we can be all in, in trust with each other. And so in Proverbs 6, the Lord gives a warning about this kind of relationship. Verses 16 through 19. Here it is in the negative. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. Now, look at this last one. And one who spreads strife among his brothers. When the Lord looks down from heaven, those upon whom... He looks with favor, those who he's called out for his purposes in Christ. He expects that they will labor to develop among each other a culture of trust. There are men and women who make their way into church who actually, rather than developing a culture of trust, they actually sow seeds of division. They have secret conversations and they bite and tear at each other and devour one another. And rather than sowing seeds of trust among the flock, they actually spend time harming my brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, first if you're one of those, to take very seriously that when the Lord lists those things that He hates, He's wanting to get them on the radar of our hearts so that we would not be a part of that kind of culture. That we ought to be working in the opposite direction, one who sows seeds of trust among brethren rather than sowing seeds of strife or discord. But He gives it in the positive in Psalm 133. Go there for just a moment. He, he gives it in a beautiful picture of how a culture of trust is developed. And in Psalm 133, a very brief psalm, one of the shortest of the psalms, he gives this picture of what this culture of trust looks like. What it was appearing as in the New Testament, and as we read uh, in Acts, we'll see, but here in Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant for it, it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robe. This is the moment when Aaron is consecrated as the high priest. It's a, it's a high and holy moment. And then he says, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And so here you have in the negative and the positive, the, the, 
the, the creating of a culture of trust. Go back to Acts chapter 4 and you see that, that the trust began growing among each other where they were dependent upon each other for possessions. They were spending their time together. We'll look more at that. But it was so much so that this trust allowed them to entrust themselves to the apostles' teaching, entrust themselves to the apostles' care. You see in verse 42 of Acts 2, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, this was a culture of trust where they were saying God has called leaders, God has called teachers, God has called people among us who are going to lead us, and we're going to entrust ourselves to their care as they shepherd our hearts and our souls. They, they, they shepherd our families so much so that they gave that time together. And then you see them in chapter 4 actually laying their possessions at the feet of the apostles because there was this culture of trust that had been built among the fellowship. Why is this important? We never go all in a culture we don't trust. We're always going to hold something back because we're afraid. We're afraid of committing to something that we're not certain is trustworthy. And so when we talk about going all in in church, so that the glory of Jesus and the worth of Jesus can be seen and manifested among us, part of the responsibility of the flock is to create, foster, and protect a climate, a culture of trust. That means that we take very strong stands against backbiting, gossip, Rumoring, tearing down. In order to create a climate of trust, we have to refuse to do the things that take trust away. And that's a labor for the church to do, and we'll see in some more of the text here in a moment as we jump into Acts 2, 3, and 4, how that fleshed itself out. But there's not going to be a climate and a culture of trust until the congregation makes absolutely certain that they are committed to protecting the climate of trust in the conversations and the actions of the flock. They go further. They're all in, not just in trust. They're all in, number two, in time. One of the challenges of the modern church is that we are incredibly busy. Culturally, we're busier than we've ever been. There's more things to sap our time. We're constantly finding ourselves looking down at our phones, 
giving time to all of the things that are there, all of the communications, all of that. We constantly find ourselves in front of the computer with the surfing, in front of the television with the watching, or, or caught up in the sport, or caught up in some activity where there's so much going on that we have very little time to devote to the eternal things. Look at how they devoted themselves. Look in chapter 2, verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Would that characterize your life? If someone was going to break down your time usage, if they took out the time you can't spare, work, sleep, and they took the other things that you can't spare some responsibilities with family and children, and they took all of the time that is left, would that time be characterized as being all in? Could somebody analyze that time and say, you know, they're really devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with other believers, to the breaking of bread, One of the things that hinders us from being all in is not just the issue of trust, it's the issue of time. Here's the bottom line. We give our time to what we love to do. That's it. It's just how it is. We just do. We give our time to what we love to do. Once we slice out the we have to's, the work, the sleep, Recently, a, a young man died after like a 48-hour video game binge. Somehow he was already unhealthy, and he got on this binge, and he was drinking these uh, energy drinks and the lack of sleep, the already complicated health problems, and then all of these energy drinks ended up taking his life, but he was doing what he loved to do. We do with our time what we love to do. And so when we analyze our time, it tells us what we're all into. Here they were all in, and they were giving that time to those things that mattered. Well, there's another place that we find. It's in our treasures. There's a saying, it's often said in government, or in tracking down issues of crime, it's follow the money. Follow the money. You want to know what somebody uh, is into? Follow the money. That's true about us. You follow how we spend our money and what our treasures are. What we're trying to collect or get or buy or have or attain or obtain. Follow the money and you will find, because Jesus said it, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And if we just look where the money goes, we'll see right where the heart already was. Because treasure follows heart, and heart follows treasure. They go together. And so the 
the New Testament church, it says in verse 44, and all those who believed were together, this is chapter 2, were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And then you get it again in chapter 4. I want to share with you something that one pastor said. I'm going to break his statement down. Here's what he said. He said that when somebody comes to Christ, two things happen. Their heart is loosened in relationship to things, and the heart is tightened in relationship to people. Now follow that. The heart is loosened in relationship to things, and the heart is tightened in relationship to people. That is a picture of the effects of the new birth. We see it. In verse 32 of chapter 4, join me there. And the congregation of those who believed, that's the key. They believed. They were what? Of one heart and one soul. Here are them gathering, drawn together, and the tightening of the relationship with each other. They were of one heart and soul. They were all in. They slid everything to the center of the table and they said, we're in. And they they tightened their relationships with each other. As trust was fostered, time was given, treasure was shared, and the Loosening of the grip on the things and the tightening of the grip of people. Where we began to value the relationship with each other above the relationship with the stuff. Notice how the verse 32 flows. Congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, the tightening. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. This is not communism. Nobody demanded this. There was not a rule. Somebody didn't come forward and say, look, this is how the church is going to operate. If you're going to be a part of us, you've got to give up all your stuff. There was none of that. In fact, you see a refutation of that just a few verses from now when we read in chapter 5. No, there was something happening supernatural that was occurring internally that wasn't from a rule that was applied externally. Nobody came in and said, okay, guys, here's how it's going to work. We're going to make you tighten your grip on each other and loosen your grip on your stuff. That's not what's happening here. What happened was that the salvation was so miraculous, so joyous, and the fostering of a community of trust, they were all in, entrusting themselves to Christ and His church and to each other. 
And they were giving their time to each other and to the things of God with each other. The fellowship, the teaching, the breaking of bread, celebrating Christ together, and the prayer time together. And they were so in that the, the, the relationships were just tightening and they were loving each other and they were just not caring about the stuff. And here he says... And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection, abundant grace. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This was where poor were coming in, and they were being accepted, not as outsiders, not as folks who were on the fringe, but the wealthy and those who had were saying, look, we'll take care of you. And there was trust. And there was mutuality. And so what's happening is, is they're all in. And it's obvious. They're not ridiculing, criticizing, backbiting, gossiping, tearing at each other. No. They're trusting. They're giving their time. They're loosening their grip on their treasure and the world is looking from the outside in and saying, that Jesus must really be something. It's made people from all walks of life, socioeconomic, ethnic backgrounds, gather up into one bunch and be accepted and be loved and be cared for. That Jesus must really be something. And it said, as a result, though the people didn't come and hang out with them for fear of the persecution that was brewing, it said that they still had those people's favor, their admiration, because they saw the value of Jesus. Satan knew that there were some avenues he could try to fracture them, and so he tried. He comes in and he tries to fracture them through, and this is the next one, number four. They were together in trial. You see, Satan said, you know, if I can make it rough, if I can persecute, if I can bring some flogging, some imprisonment, if I can bring some loss of job and income, if I can make it difficult for them, I know what I can do. I can break them up. But here's how they were all in. They were so all in already with this culture of trust, with giving their time to each other, with giving their treasure to each other, that when the trials came, rather than separating Look in chapter 4 at what they do in verse 23. Rather than separating, they get together and they pray. Trials did not drive them from each other. Listen carefully. When people love each other, trials will not drive them apart. It will drive them together. You watch a family that loves each other in the middle of a difficult situation, they pull together. 
hear, Satan says, I'll fracture him, I'll isolate him, I'll break him up, I'll separate. And so in verse 23 it says, And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported that all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God. With one accord, this is the congregation coming together in prayer once the persecution starts. Once Peter and James are flogged and released, they come together and they pray. It says, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verse 25, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant did say, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of thy threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. What did they do? When the troubled times come because of a culture of trust and a devotion of time and the donation of treasure, they built a place that they knew they could flee to together. And they came together in prayer to God. And when the trials came, it didn't separate them. It made them closer. It made them tighter developed a greater culture of trust, a greater investment of time, a greater sacrifice of treasure. They came together in trials. Something happens at the end of this section of Acts that's one of the biggest revelation of the early part of God's work in the church. And it comes to us at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And basically what happens here is God says, you know what? Even in a wonderful culture of trust where people are all in with their time, and all in with their treasures, and all come together in their trials, even there, there's always going to be some fakes. There's always going to be some folks who are, are wanting to be a part of that for some kind of broken reason. For some kind of instant benefit that has nothing to do with Christ and His work. Has nothing to do with the church and her glory. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God and its expansion. Somehow it just has to be that they're only there for some kind of selfish reason that's not connected to God at all. And so what God does is he brings up two folks and he holds them in contrast to each other. Chapter 4, verse 36. Join me there. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, 
who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's here's Barnabas. He's in. He's in. He's got this group that he's entrusted himself to. Time, there's an investment. He's with them. Treasure, there's an investment. He sells some stuff and he gives it. And he's he's in. And he's got a name. Son of encouragement. There's something about him. But then it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, and there really shouldn't be a chapter division there because it's the same story. And the story is a story of contrasting two people. So chapter 5 starts with an adversative. It says, but there was a certain man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, and sold a piece of property. So if you're standing on the outside looking, looks like Ananias and Sapphira are in, all in. They're giving the appearance that they're in, they're in. And so they want to look in, so they see what, they see what, happens in the life of Barnabas and, and this guy he's got like a nickname because of the way that he acts maybe we can get us a nickname and so Ananias and Sapphira they sell some property verse 2 and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it laid it at the apostles feet looks like he's in Now, I want to go ahead and give you the last point because this is where where the danger is when you came to church today. This is a, a grave, grave danger. That somehow, that there's something lying behind why you're in doesn't say anything about Jesus' work. It doesn't say anything about the work of God and the expansion of the kingdom. But that the reason you're here today says something about you. And that's why you came. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they go in front of the apostles. Not because Jesus is better. Not because they want a culture of trust. Not because they want to be all in with their time because this is the most valuable thing that they could ever give themselves to. Not because they want to give all of their treasure in a way that gives glory. No, 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 no. They they show up that day because it's all about them. And so... We can't be all in until we're all in, number five, in truth. You see, there is one who is looking down on us today. And he knows why we're here. He knows what motivated us to show up today and any time we come. He knows what's behind our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, our activities. He knows what's behind all that we do. 
And so what he does is he gives us an example in the book of Acts that's very horrifying. He says, they brought it and they laid it right in front of the apostles' feet. They wanted to look just like Barnabas, who by all perceptions by everyone was all in. And now Ananias and Sapphira say, we want to we look like that too. Notice that. We want to look like that too. Not we want to be that. We want to look like that. And so they show up. And they make this offering kind of a big deal. Joseph, Barnabas, he comes to them and in this encouraging heart, yeah, this, this guy with a big heart shows up and he gives it. And, and everybody says, man, this Barnabas, he's such an encouragement. We've got a need over here and this guy's going to meet this need. What an encouragement. He's not building a name for himself. Here, Ananias and Sapphira show up, and Peter rebukes him so strongly in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There's something said in the next few verses, starting now, that's the grave danger. When we do church things, not from a heart of Jesus is better and I'm willing therefore to be all in in trust. When it's not from a heart of Jesus is better and I'm willing to give that time to him because he's worth it. When it's not from a heart that says Jesus is better and all of my treasure can be used any way Jesus wants it because he's better. When something else is driving us other than Jesus is better. And we start doing religious activity. God does not, God does not couch the offense in terms of the people that we lie to in the process. He doesn't say, why'd y'all lie to the church? He doesn't say, why'd y'all lie to your friends? He doesn't say, why'd you lie to your family? Why are you, why are you being a hypocrite in front of the, your co-workers? He doesn't say that. God, through Peter, launches directly into who we're dealing with in this thing called worship. And he steps right up to us and he says, you know who you're lying to? You think you're lying to God. So listen to his words. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, he didn't have to do this. Nobody required him to. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? He didn't have to give it. He could have sold it and spent it on whatever. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Worship and the church are such high and holy things that when we toy with them, we're not toying with each other. 
one is God. And so when we talk about being all in, we're not talking about perfection. Nobody's ever perfect. Christ is the only perfect one. But there is a difference between the heart that desires to be all in, in trust, in time, in treasure, in trial, and in truth, and the one who is simply These are the ones that Jesus spoke of in his parable of the wheat and the tares. These are the ones that give all appearance. You see, God does not treat everybody in the church through all of the ages of the church who are fakes, just like Ananias and Sapphira, because we couldn't bear it. Just as Jesus said, if you rooted up all the tares, it would uproot the wheat that's with it. We couldn't bear it. But in the early church, he gives us one example, not of what we should fear temporally. Because the lesson is not about temporal life and death. The lesson that he gives is the, what we should fear eternally. And so what does he say? Verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men arose and covered him up and carried him out. And they buried him and there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, sure, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. There is a way that you and I can make pretense about a culture of trust. There's a way that we can make pretense about being all in with our time. We can busy ourselves with church activities. I mean full speed. We can also give all kinds of appearance that we're all in with our treasure. But there is a God who's sitting on his throne right now. And he is looking at every one of our hearts today. And he knows this. Whether or not we're in this in truth. He knows. He knows everything that motivates everything that we do. And he knows if we're in this for Jesus And he's looking down at every heart in this building and every building across the world that is housing worshipers right now, and he's seeing those hearts. And he 
what he wants us to do is come to him in truth. All he wants is our hearts. Would you bow with me? If this morning you came here and you've been a part of some kind of religious pretense and you showed up today out of that same pretense again the glorious thing is that God has sent this message not because of anything other than his love for you. That you could come to this moment of reckoning and you could settle this issue today. Jesus really is better. And yes, he's worthy of us coming here in trust and developing a culture of trust from Christ first and then among each other through leaders and through followers and through the flock. Yes, And he is interested in time and us investing ourselves. And he is interested in our treasure and us being freely giving of that. And he is interested in what we do when our trials come. But he's most interested in whether or not we're in this. All in. In truth. And so I just want to ask you this morning when you came. Regardless of what all the appearances are, can it truly be said in your heart today, I have come because Jesus is better. I'm I'm in. I'm in in truth. I know it's not perfect, but I'm in. And God knows it. God knows it. But it's possible you showed up today and now is the time to settle it. And you want to show that Jesus is better. And so you want to receive from Him. You know you've heard the story of his life, sinless, his death, a sacrifice for sins, his resurrection on the third day, justification for all who believe. And how he sits today at the right hand of the Father, interceding and mediating for those who are his. And you're ready to go all in. this moment call on Christ to save you and go all in would you do that pray with me Father in heaven I know my sin is great but I hear the words of Jesus come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest I hear the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I've heard those words. And this moment, I believe them. I repent of my sin.
glorious thing if you prayed this morning is that He is able to deliver you. All who call on His name shall be saved. Take hope in that. Leave here today all healed. Would you stand? Would you come? shall still repeat that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he Oh, and all to him I owe.
Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. Jesus, let's sing this again. Jesus paid it all.